Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. Thanks for joining us today and giving us the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known in Scripture. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the, in Los Angeles. In Exodus chapter 20, when God is standing before Israel and begins to pronounce the Ten Commandments, the law for Israel, he begins by saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, many times in the rest of the Old Testament, when God speaks to his people, he will call himself uh, Yahweh who brought you out from the land of Egypt. It's called an epithet. It's a description of who God is. And when these kind of epithets are used, God is trying to uh, focus Israel's mind on something. He wants them to understand he's not just God. He is the God who has done a specific thing or is maintained specific characteristics. And this one is used many times, around 49 times in the Old Testament, directly or indirectly. Why would God want to emphasize to Israel that he is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt? Why is it used? And what can that possibly mean for us who are Christians in a different covenant at a different time? Let's consider uh, what's going on with this epithet that God is the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And to understand what that referent means, we need to go back to Exodus and to understand what's going on. In Exodus 1 and 2, we're, we're told the situation. All the Israelites had gone down to Egypt in the days of Joseph during the famine, and they had stayed there after the famine. They had grown numerous, and therefore a later Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, uh, enslaved them all. And they did hard uh, labor for the Egyptians, building uh, cities up in uh, lower Egypt. And... It is in this condition that Moses is born, Moses uh, lives in Pharaoh's house, and then Moses is compelled to flee Egypt. And in Exodus chapters 3 through 6, we hear how God calls Moses to be the, the agent by, through which God was going to uh, communicate and to lead his people out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we read of the ten plagues. Uh, including the darkness over the land, the frogs, the gnats, um, the boils, um, hail, and things of that nature. All of these plagues that demonstrated God's great power and greatly humbled Egypt, which at this time was one of the greatest powers of the age and who had great confidence in, in their gods, and yet their gods could do nothing for them. And finally, of course, the last plague was the death of the firstborn and the reason that Pharaoh proved willing to let Israel go. Then in Exodus 13 through 15, Pharaoh had repented of letting Israel go and sent his army out against them. And the Red Sea was parted and the Israelites passed through as if on dry land. And then when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were consumed and they all perished. These are the events that are referenced when God calls himself Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt. So why does God speak about this in this way? What, why is, in fact, and this leads even to a, a deeper question. Uh, why the Exodus anyway? Why is it that God 
allowed his people to suffer thus for, for generations, it seems, and then to have to lead them out uh, so dramatically. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, we're told some reasoning from God why uh, this took place. In verse 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and lived? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you, and on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. And so, there is no other. God is God. How could Israel know that their God was the only God? Well, if the gods of the Egyptians existed, you would have imagined that they would have done something to help Egypt in its time of trouble. And yet, nothing happened, and Yahweh was able to accomplish his great signs there and over them. He was able to take this nation and to make something of it. That this could never have happened by human effort or ingenuity alone. That it required the hand of the divine for this to happen. And thus it is, thus Israel was to maintain confidence. And it was supposed to lead to something, as we can see in verse 40. Therefore you shall keep his statute and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, that you may prolong your days in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for all time. And that's also in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Why do we have this Torah? Why do we have this instruction? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, as he has commanded us. So all of the expectations of why do we do what God tells us to do? Well, we do what God tells us to do because look at what God did in the past. God rescued our ancestors out of Egypt with a strong hand. Yahweh proved that he is God and there is no other. If Yahweh is God and he is no other, we need to do what he says. Well, what happens if we don't do what he says. Well, that's where there's that warning, right? The warning that all oh, the plagues that would come upon Egypt would come upon them. Okay? Um, and that's in Deuteronomy 11. You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today 
Consider the discipline of Yahweh your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt into all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how Yahweh has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen the great work of the Yahweh that he did. So it's not even just the things that happened in, in Egypt, but also in the wilderness. It's all to be this experience. And he says that they need to keep the commandment. They're going into this great land that God is giving them. And if they do what God says, he's going to give all of these blessings. And they need to observe the law, and they will multiply in that land forever. But if they don't, he warns them that uh, if they do not obey the commandments of Yahweh their God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after gods you have not known, uh, in verse 28, uh, there will be that curse. And the curse will be that all of the condemnation that would happen to others would come upon them. And so it, it all logically flows in a very coherent way. God demonstrates who he is, that he can be trusted. That is what happened with Egypt. In Egypt, he pulled them out of Egypt, and he brought them out in, in using powerful displays that could not have been done by man's hand for Israel to give reason to trust that God is who he says he is. And since God is who he says he is, they need to listen to him and do what he says. Because if they don't do what he says, they are going to suffer as uh, they saw the Egyptians suffer because they have disobeyed the will of the holy and righteous God. So it all flows and checks out. Why should Israel... At any later time, listen to God and the prophets. Well, because look at what happened when they left Egypt. Yahweh is the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. becomes a way of describing the fact that they had this deliverance and they were supposed to act in a different way based upon that deliverance to make good on that deliverance. And this wasn't just something that was said in the law. It is there in the law, as we can see. But it's also seen in the observances that Israel was to maintain. And in these observances, Israel is given reason to reflect upon what happened. The, the most significant, of course, is the Passover. Uh, Passover uh, was established in Exodus 12 and 13. In fact, you, you stop the narrative there to have a very long description of, of the Passover. Because this is what every generation of Israel is going to continue to do. They're going to get rid of all the leaven out of their house. They're going to eat unleavened bread with bitter herbs. They're going to eat as if they're ready to go. They're going to be fully dressed to run. Uh, they are, in a sense, jointly participating in the Exodus the way that their ancestors did. Uh, where they are living out in these rituals, the very thing that took place in Egypt all those years ago, so that they can demonstrate their connection and their association with what uh, went on before. The Feast of the Eleventh Bread, likewise. The fact that they would eat uh, without leaven for seven days because uh, that's what they had to do when they left Egypt. Even something like the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is really uh, much more of an agricultural holiday. It's a celebration of the harvest where they're out in tents, uh, and they're out in the tents because they're out harvesting their fields. But yet in Leviticus 23, when it talks about the Feast of, um, of Booths, and beginning in verse 39, uh, part of the logic of the Feast of Booths is that in... Um, 
verse 42, shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. So, even though they are now living in much more settled locations, he wants them to, while they're doing the harvest and everything like that, they are living in this uh, much more temporary kind of dwelling in tents to remind themselves of how their ancestors dwelled in tents uh, when they left e Egypt and headed toward the promised land. And a lot of it goes back to that humility, to remember how dependent they were on God. And he was very concerned about that when they would enter this land of great wealth. And they would f therefore forget uh, where they had come from and what had happened. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and in verse 14, um, in verse 11, Take care lest you forget the Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, and who brought you out, brought water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget Yahweh your God and go after gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that Yahweh makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And so you got this arrogance that comes based upon all this prosperity that they may have, and that would lead them to forget where all of that prosperity came from, and that it let, sets them up to be condemned and destroyed just as uh, those who were condemned and destroyed before them. And not only that, but there are a lot of the laws that will go back to uh, the idea of what they experience, and that's supposed to shape how they look at things. God continually wants Israel to be shaped more by their experience in leaving Egypt in the Exodus and, and, and enduring the wilderness than in their days of prosperity in the land of Israel. So the reason in Exodus 22 23 in Leviticus 19, that Israel are to treat sojourners well. People from other nations dwelling in their midst are to be treated well because they were sojourners in Egypt. They know what the life of the sojourner is like, or at least their ancestors did, and so they're supposed to treat uh, people uh, in, in a similar way. Every 49 years, there was supposed to be a jubilee year for all Hebrews to be released from their obligations. And the reason for that in Leviticus 25 is because God delivered all the Israelites out of Egypt. That you should not recreate the oppressive structures from which you came, uh, but that there should be this liberation because you are a people who have been delivered. In fact, you even get to the point um, in, in, in Deuteronomy where the reason for the Sabbath is because you have been uh, liberated from Egypt. Uh, and, and the reason for the Sabbath is not just you need a day of rest, but that uh, a day of rest is for you and your animals and sojourners and workers and everybody else uh, because you are not enslaved to work. And also, of course, as we see throughout all of these passages and many others, 
it was designed to lay to reverence toward God, that God was to be revered. And why should God be revered? He led Israel out of Egypt. In Exodus 14.31, in fact, the people do revere Yahweh because of the deliverance they had just experienced. We see in Joshua 2 and verse 10, Joshua 9 and verse 9, 1 Samuel 4 and verse 8. In 1 Samuel, we're talking about the Philistines who weren't even living in the land when all of this Exodus stuff was happening. And they've heard about it, though. And so when the Ark of the Covenant comes on, uh, these are the gods that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And this leads them to be panicked and afraid. Uh, So even when Israel doesn't necessarily remember uh, how fearsome Yahweh is, the neighbors do. That the name of Yahweh would go out as, don't mess with these people, see what happened. God, you know, this God messed up the Egyptians, Uh, let them be. And that's exactly what God intended from this, was that everybody would revere his name and would recognize who he is uh, in Ezekiel 20 and verse 9. And in fact, this is the reason why Israel should not fear their enemies. Uh, because as if God had released them from Egypt, and the Egyptians, much more powerful than any Canaanite group, he can certainly uh, overcome any enemy that the Israelites would face. So, this we see what's going on here and and the evocation i am yahweh who brought you up from the land of egypt is a reminder of israel of who they were where they came from and the way god wanted them to look at themselves and what he had done for them and so great we see this 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 is what's going on here with israel what can we take out of this right we're christians it's a much later age we uh were not brought out of the land of egypt right at the, at the same time, every single major lesson that God wanted Israel to learn about their relationship with him based upon what he had accomplished in the Exodus and the wilderness journeys, thus in, in Christ, we are to understand God as the one who sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, who raised him from the dead, and has given us the hope of eternal life in him. And that's supposed to shape the Christian as much and as profoundly as the Exodus experience was to shape Israel. And we can see parallel after parallel after parallel. Everything that we've seen, we have parallels. We have the festival parallel. We've talked about how there was the Passover, right? And that there was a reminder of what God accomplished in the Exodus in in these observances. Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26, Paul says that he gave to the Corinthians what he had received. That on the night he was betrayed, the Lord took bread and broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. Uh, the, this is the blood of the new covenant. Do, take the, do this in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a ritual meal in which we jointly participate in the body and blood of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, we are, just like Israel is recreating the Exodus experience in the Passover, so Christians are recreating the event in the upper room. They do so on the first day of the week, on the day of the resurrection, as a reminder that this is what Jesus did for us. This is, what, this is the salvation God has accomplished for us. This is how we have received liberation from sin and death. And it's supposed to be this humbling thing that transforms the way that we look at everything. In uh, Romans chapter 6, 
in verse 16 through 18, Paul tells Christians in, in a carnal way to look at themselves as you were slaves of sin. But through what God's accomplished in Jesus, you can now be slaves of righteousness. And this was supposed to be something where they were to be humbled by this and to recognize their uh, dependence upon God. Uh, we talked about how Israel was to always remember that they had come and been rescued in a way that humans could never do. And that was a demonstration of God's power and that they were to look at themselves and their relationship with other people that, according to that same paradigm. And that's exactly what we see also uh, in in Christ. In Titus chapter 3, Paul has a very important exhortation for um, Titus to, to pass on. In verse 3 of Titus 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trust then I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Very similar message in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians, Paul's trying to make this point that this is a mystery, that the way that God provided salvation in Jesus had all of these antecedents in the law and the prophets and the Psalms, but you would never put the story together that way. And that's why it was a mystery. It had to, be, it had to play out and be revealed. This was not of human doing. This was not uh, the story that humans would put together. And again, just like God proved himself faithful when he delivered Israel out of Egypt, God proves himself faithful to his promises in Christ. Hebrews author, that's a major theme throughout the Hebrews letter, is that God was faithful to his promise in Jesus. And so God proves faithful, right? God is faithful, and God has proven himself faithful. So now we are exhorted to display that same kind of uh, faithfulness toward him. And that's what you get out of Romans 6. Is you're supposed to see this, this transformative experience, right? Uh, Paul has this, the hypothetical that comes up from what he said about the fact that where sin abound and grace abound all the more. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. But how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he goes through and says, we've been baptized into Christ Jesus into his death. And we want to emphasize that. Hey, look, baptism, it's a death. If it's a burial, it's immersion uh, that we need to die to sin to walk in newness of life. And we really want to make it about baptism, baptism, baptism. And baptism is, is, is certainly here. But baptism is to say, you were baptized because you're no longer living the way you used to live. You killed the way you used to live so that you would no longer die. And he goes through and talks about how uh, in verses 5 through 11, that Jesus died to no longer have to die. He is now living. He's in the resurrection. He will never die again. And so, in verse 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey your passion, their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So, God is faithful. 
we need to now live according to life in Jesus because we have died to sin and have raised to walk in newness of life. We have gone through our own death and resurrection, and therefore, just like the Lord's Supper, baptism is itself kind of a reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection in that sense. We don't want to take that too far since Jesus died once and was raised once. Uh, but we put our share into that by experiencing that same thing. And then we are to see ourselves and reckon ourselves as dead to sin. It's going to transform the way that we live. And it's supposed to transform our hearts, that everything now takes the shape of what God has done in Jesus. That is why in chapter 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Similar message in 1 John 4, 7 through 21. We love because God first loved us. We have come to know what love is through what God has done in Jesus. And thus now we are to love one another. We are to sacrifice one another. We are to have the love of God for other people, which is, I'm not giving you what you deserve. Uh, I am giving you what you do not deserve. Not, And it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the fact that I have received what I have not deserved from God. And that God has loved me when I was most unlovable. And now if I want to share in God, I must, like God, love as he has loved me. All of that goes back to that transformative event of God enduring the cross and the sh despising the shame in Jesus and, and dying for us. And we see that we are to love and praise God because of this, because of the great love he has shown us, that we are to be overwhelmed by that great love. Uh, in Ephesians 3, that's Paul's prayer, that we would uh, be able to discern the great depths of the unfathomable love that he has for us in Jesus, and that's supposed to continually overwhelm us into praise. And there's also that warning, though, that if we have received all of this, but then we turn and we sin, and we go back to the ways of the world, there, there's that fearful expectation of judgment in um, Hebrews chapter uh, 10, and also the warnings in chapters 3 and 6 about the, that nature of sin. Even what we see here in Romans 6, that we're not supposed to present ourselves as, as instruments of unrighteousness, to re-crucify Jesus, to do the very things that led to us being in this distress and awful situation. But we need to turn away from that, and if we prove disobedient, we're going to suffer uh, the consequences along with all of those who have uh, persisted in disobedience. And so we can see over and over again here, that the, the parallels are almost exactly alike, and for good reason. That yes, for Israel, Yahweh is the God who delivered them out of Egypt. And that was the form and shape the whole way they looked at their, their standing and their relationship with him. They would get all kinds of wealth in a very uh, comfortable, stable society there in Israel. And God knew that if that's all they knew, they would become haughty and arrogant. They would forget him. They would just do what everybody else was doing and go along the flow. And they would become no better than anybody else. And that's exactly what happened. Because they did not remember that Yahweh was a God who brought them out of Egypt. They confessed it with their mouths, but not by their behaviors. And it led them astray. And that's the danger that we have as Christians, that, that we also think that we have gained what we have by our own strength. And therefore, we think that what we have in our are because of how great we are, 
and we therefore hitch our wagon to the world and the society around us, become like everybody else around us. We hate others and are hated in turn. We justify our treatment of other people based upon how they have treated us or based the standards around us. And we have forgotten that God is faithful and God has rescued us in Christ and that's supposed to transform how we see ourselves. That we're never going to be fully comfortable in our current circumstance because to do that would be to forget the God who has purchased us. And that we need to uh, continually allow our way of looking at things to be shaped by what God has demonstrated, his covenant loyalty to us through Jesus on the cross and uh, being raised from the dead, that we need to die to sin and walk in righteousness, that we need to love others as God has loved us, that we need to um, understand that we ha do not deserve or earn or merit anything we've received, but all of it is a grace from God, and we are to use it in ways that glorify and honor Him. And that if we just go along with the crowd, we will suffer the disobedience, the same penalty of disobedience as the crowd. And we will re re receive the due penalty of the nations around us. And that is why it is so important for us to remember God, who has proven faithful to his covenant, faithful to his people, and to continually praise and glorify him for the salvation we've received in Jesus, and to seek to accomplish his purposes and to shape our lives according to what he has done in Christ, to his glory and honor. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful, Father, for your love and care and provision for us. We're thankful for your covenant loyalty and your, and your steadfast love, that you have had regard for us, that you care for us, and that you have proven faithful to Israel, and you have proven faithful to us in Jesus. We're thankful for Jesus and the life that he lived, the death he suffered, uh, the fact that he is raised and serves as Lord, and reigns as Lord, and that he will uh, return one day. We're thankful for the Spirit and the Word and for one another and all the material spiritual blessings you've given us in Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would continually remind us that you have brought us out of the bondage of sin and death, and that you have liberated us in Jesus and that we pray that we would continually look to you in Christ to uh, shape the way that we look at ourselves and you and our fellow man, and that we would love others as you have loved us, that we would have compassion on others as you have compassion upon us, that we would do what is right and holy in your sight, uh, empowered through your Son and the Spirit to, to accomplish that to your glory and honor, not in trying to glorify ourselves or, or to be self-righteous, but in all things become more like you that we can share in life in you uh, for eternity. We pray that others would see that and hear the message and come to better understanding your purposes and also seek to glorify you and your son. Uh, and we look forward to his return and we uh, earnestly look forward to that day that we can share in the resurrection of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're so thankful you've joined us, and we'd love to hear what you have to think about why God would want Israel to remember that he was Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt, and uh, the parallels that we've seen, and uh, how we can more effectively shape our lives according to what God has done for us in Jesus. Uh, maybe you have other questions or comments, please reach out. Let us know uh, where you found us here and subscribe to us, uh, or you can find us at VenturechurchChrist.org or on social media on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. May the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.